typically we get them to flip to more of a clinical improvement. So are we reaching diabetics with holistic programs that are making their quality of life better? Are we putting in programs to reduce unnecessary orthopedic surgeries or improve the accuracy of cancer diagnoses? Mm -hmm. I believe a wellness program is not a cost saver. It's an investment. So I say to my employers all the time when they talk about wellness programs, let's save you some money. Give me a year or two. And then let's take some of that savings and invest in the wellness of your employees. Hey, what's up, guys? Spencer Smith here, host of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast, sponsored by Pareto Health, ClaimDoc, and PlanSight. Enjoy today's episode. Because I look at what you, you do and the level of sophistication required to what you do is like, how do you groom Sally or Joe, new insurance consultant that's 22 years old that has nowhere near the level of knowledge that you have to lean into what you're doing and say, that's what I want to do. And well, now go do it. Right. I got that, a story about scale okay. too. So, okay. Cause I, you know, that's, again, I looked at the, what, what, what Pareto has been able to achieve with scale and is everything exactly as you would design it or a Chris Hamilton would design it? Probably not. But the things that you do compromise on are not things that are deal breakers for the most part. And if the idea is let's going to move as many of employers around to a worldview as we possibly can and accept some of those compromises. So for me, OptumRx would be a deal breaker. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough, man. Uh, and I get that. I totally get that. Um, and this is where I have to take off Spencer hat for a moment and just understand. But to scale, you have to do that. To That's the, scale the market yeah. is demanding their own kick in the shin, which... Well, as much as I would love every employer to use reference-based pricing or some form of it, I don't believe every employer well. is going to be able to... You may disagree, and this would be a fun conversation, but that that is a level of difficulty that's kind of on the farthest end of the spectrum. I just want to point out that yeah. about 80-something percent, I forget the exact number, but 80-something percent of workers' comp plans have been using reference-based pricing okay. for 20 or 30 years. So my question is, if it's okay for an employer to pay for health care when they're hurt at work in that model, why is it not okay to pay for health care outside of being Perfect. hurt at work? It's a great question. Then, okay, then I'll go back to my question, like, how do we deploy that at large for millions and millions of lives? Um, and I want to hear your perspective on that. So we good to go, Nathan? All right. Well, David, let's dive right, right into it. We kind of introduce you to a degree in the previous episode where we had Emma on as well, but I want to go a little bit further into the David Contorno backstory first. What shaped you, how you got mm -hmm. to the, the point you are today, and then we're going to dig into some real technical stuff, I think, on this episode. But real quickly, David, uh, tell us a little bit about you. Well, so my parents got divorced at 12, 13 years old, and it really, I guess I was at the right age where it propelled me to want to be more independent. And so okay. um, in the earlier episode, I mentioned that I started in the insurance industry, not health insurance, but insurance at 12 years old. And the story behind that is I was in a very small school district outside of New York City. They had just taken the seventh and eighth grade out of the elementary school building and combined it with the high school when I was going into seventh grade. Okay. So I was 12 years old going into the high school building. And the high school building had a little employment office for the high school kids. And I remember there was this little three by five note card with a push pin in it. And it said, telemarketer wanted. <laughs> okay. So I called and I guess I sounded older on the phone. The guy invited me down. As I mentioned, I was very overweight at the time. So I biked, I don't know how many miles. I'm a sweaty mess when I get there. And he looks at me, he goes, how old are you? And he, he said, 12. He goes, no, no, no. I wanted someone at least 16 or 17. And I said, I just biked five miles to get here. The least you could do is give me a shot. Yeah. And he's like, Okay. I wound up being really good at it. Um, yeah. Telemarketing. I was doing double or triple the appointments for the agents. I wasn't selling the actual insurance. I was just setting appointments. Um, then I went to work for a chain of camera stores. I thought I wanted to be in photography. I went to college for one year for it. Left college at 17 and started selling health insurance pretty much shortly thereafter. That's a crazy early start into health insurance. So what were you doing at 16, 17 years old in this space? 
Uh, so honestly, I was up in New York. I went um, to work with my best friend, who was also my roommate, and his dad, who had a little tiny insurance shop on Long Island. And I was selling two and three life plumber groups. And for anyone that's from the Northeast, this was right when a company called Oxford Health Plans was starting to gain traction. Yeah. So I was selling a lot of Oxford Health Plans. They eventually got bought by United Healthcare. But um, yeah, I was driving out to the end of Long Island for a three life plumber group. Um, there was a big dental association plan that collapsed. I wound up getting a lot of dentists, but these are two and three life groups. But, you know, in your young 20s or high teens, you can make a living out of sure. that, um, especially when you get those commission pay raises every year. Well, so like what was life like back then in terms of the types of insurance, like actual health insurance versus what we know today? Like, tell me a little bit of the differences there. Uh, I mean, really, when I was coming about, the roots of what we have today were just coming about. So in-network deductibles were just becoming a thing. Okay. Um, and of course, they industry spun it as they'll have more skin in the game and they won't do unnecessary things. None of that turned out to be true. Um, but that's when I came about when just in network HMOs were just starting to go away in network deductibles, point of service, PPO plans were coming out. Um, it, it really was nothing innovative. I was just, you know, my goal was to be the, the least bad option on the spreadsheet. And if I was, then I got the business. Yeah. yeah. Well then when, uh, when did you have that moment where you got into, cause I think, I feel like there was a distinct line in the sand of your history yep. and your, the way that you approach benefits, what you do today versus what you used to do. So I think the old days, you would say you would have been more in line with a traditional insurance broker. Right? I was. I so, was completely yeah, traditional. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, so I built an agency up in New York. I then moved to North Carolina in 07, started over again, essentially. And <laughs> when I first moved to North Carolina, my uh, idea of innovation was showing someone other than Blue Cross and Blue Shield because Blue Cross and Blue Shield in North Carolina, which wasn't allowed in New York, so this was new for me, had massive bonus programs tied to new business and retention. And so brokers were literally just showing Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And because of me having done a lot of business with Oxford, which got acquired by United, when I moved to North Carolina, I got instant connections with United. And United was the second biggest carrier, but a huge delta between them and Blue Cross. So there was enough name recognition that it had credibility, but I was fairly showing the market. So I was getting a ton of, I mean, I got a lot of business <laughs> in a very short period of time, um, grew this up. But the specific to your question, um, I had written, or one of my salespeople had written a lumber manufacturer in rural North Carolina, okay. like talking salt of the earth, as blue collar as blue collar gets. And uh, at the time, and there, this is written about, in Dr. Marty McCary's book, The Price We Pay. Um, but at the time, I had a pretty nice German car and I had a driver. And we wrote this client and stuff is exploding. Okay. And they call me in, I'm trying to save the business. So I pull up to this rural lumber manufacturer in this six-figure German black automobile. I get out of the back seat of that automobile. I did not read my audience well at all that day. And I go down to their conference room there's two women there with stacks of papers. They're all bills and invoices. And I'm like, okay, we're going to get through this. We're going to figure this out. And as I'm doing this, this guy who's like five foot two, pretty short, sits down at the head of the table, doesn't say a word. I finished up with the two women as best I could at the time. I turned to him and said, sir, what can I do for you? And he said, don't blow smoke up my ass. And I said, excuse me? And he said, don't blow smoke on my ass. I saw you get out of your six-figure car, the back seat of that car. Meanwhile, my wife is writhing at home in bed in pain because this plan no longer covers her multiple sclerosis medicine. And because of you, she's a worse wife. She's a worse grandmother. She's a worse mother. She's a worse employee. And he basically blamed me for throwing 
financial and clinical chaos into his life. And you know what? I had no defense against that. And right after that, I was going to a renewal meeting of a good client, like where he and I would text on the weekends. And I had this premonition as I'm heading there. I said, you know, I do these annual renewal meetings with my clients. And the longer they've been my client, the more I've done these renewal meetings. But not a single one of my clients looks forward to that renewal meeting because I'm bringing in varying degrees of bad news. But what got really hard for me was not the meeting with the employer to give them the bad news. It was the meeting with their employees a few weeks later to tell them perpetually what's coming out of their paycheck is going up, what's coming out of their pocket is going up, more restrictions, you know, shorter formulary lists, whatever the case may be. And, you know, I realized I was bringing these plans with three, four, five thousand dollars out of pockets to people that maybe had three, four, five hundred dollars in their savings account. And a really important thing, when I studied for my insurance license in New York, They taught us that the history of insurance, humans created insurance for one reason and only one reason, to protect us from catastrophic financial loss. And that's what we expect of every other type of insurance we buy as individuals or businesses. And health insurance has been so perverted that it becomes the one insurance that we go bankrupt when we use. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I'd argue it's sucking so many resources from us and our employers that the likelihood of us going bankrupt is even higher because we don't have the money left over. It's coming out of our pocket healthcare in so many ways, taxes, nonprofits not paying taxes, you know, the, the premiums that come out of our pocket, the money that comes out of our pocket when we use it, it's... it's well, I was, I, what is the latest stat? The family premiums are somewhere in the neighborhood of $23,000 uh, annually, right? So you look at that and go, uh, you could basically buy a car every single year and how much... I mean, granted, it's being split between the employer and employee in most instances, but that's an insane amount of But money. is it really? I mean, wouldn't most of that go back to that employee as either wages or sure. retirement if, if it was yeah. gone completely? Well, you, and I, your point is well taken that we've perverted or bastardized the intention of insurance in the first place, where now people think, oh, I've got my Blue Cross card. I'm going to go hand it to my doctor to pay my copay or to pay for the $5 pill or whatever it may be. That was not the original intention of the insurance, like you said. Did you feel, though, that you needed that jarring in-your-face moment to change? Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States. And it's also now the main sponsor of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one, their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two, their mission to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid-sized employers. And number three, the strength and scale of their program. With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at ParetoHealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments. I did. Yeah. Okay. You know, listen, I I know I'm very vocal in the the conflict of interest and how brokers are paid. And I do believe that there is an inherent conflict of interest. But I think there's two groups of brokers. There's brokers that are knowingly influenced by those incentives. And I think that's the smaller group. And there are those that are unknowingly influenced mm-hmm. by those incentives. But I believe to deny that you're influenced by those incentives is to deny your humanity. And once you see those incentives, and once you expand that to see, okay, how are doctors paid? How do carriers get paid? How do health systems get paid? How do drug manufacturers get paid? How do PBMs get paid? You understand that the way they get paid is it, it, it 
exactly maps out the results we're getting every single day. Yeah, it's to the de detriment ultimately of the employee or the individual, you know, American. I'm the same way in that once I see something, I really it's really difficult for me to pretend it didn't exist, right? And then you want to align yourself as ethically as possible with, with what you think is either optimal or the most moral stance to take. Not everybody's perfect, right? And we don't slip up or there's other confounding influences. But once you see the way that we've coupled commission with premium, and then you understand how that might motivate behavior by a broker for recommendations, it's hard to unsee that. And I, I remember I was um, fortunate enough to be asked to help North Carolina roll out the Affordable Care Act. So, you know, when the federal law passed, every state had choices. If they didn't make a choice, it defaulted in most cases. And so I'm helping North Carolina roll this out. And there was a, a gentleman there who was the CEO of a small regional health carrier that eventually got bought by Aetna, but they were independent. And he, not that this was necessarily the right forum, but he lamented that every time Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina puts out a $10,000 new small group broker bonus program, his new sales dried up, regardless of how competitive he was, regardless of how right of a decision it was. And until he put out a $10,000 bonus as well, he had no new business. Gotcha. And he says, who do you think is paying that $10,000 bonus? The employer and the employees are paying for it. Yeah. So that was, you know, there were lots of these little things that started to accumulate in my brain that started to make me see, wait a second. You know, as a traditional broker, I had no inventory on the shelves that were depreciating. I had no accounts receivable. Mm -hmm. I got a 10 to 15% pay raise every single year. Like, it was a sweet gig. Well, it's a great business, and it's almost like even if you do know it, and you said the smaller cohort are the ones that are aware of it and keep doing what they're doing. It's hard to disrupt once you've got a, a viable business and a profitable business and a lifestyle and a family and a mortgage. I mean, it's, I understand that it's not as easy as like, I'm going to stop doing that and I'm going to go do something completely different tomorrow. It just yep. doesn't work like that. So you actually said you had to eventually exit that firm, right? Or, or your, your business, right? I did. Yeah. I, I, I didn't sell my agency to private equity for that purpose, but the timing of it worked out that I saw the opportunity that it brought. So I sold my agency in 2014. I stayed on as an equity partner until 2017, and then I exited fully. And when I started ePowered Benefits, I said, you know what, we're going to be committed to getting paid in an aligned model mm -hmm. with our clients. So yeah. our, I don't know of any other consultant that does this, but our, our standard fees are posted on our website for both our competition and our prospects and clients to see. We charge a fixed monthly fee. Our contract prohibits us from taking revenue on a medical plan in any other capacity but the fixed monthly fee from the client. And with most of our clients, we get a performance bonus tied to achieving certain goals. Normally, the first few years, those goals are financial. Mm -hmm. And then typically, we get them to flip to more of a clinical improvement. So are we reaching diabetics with holistic programs that are making their quality of life better? Are we putting in programs to reduce unnecessary orthopedic surgeries or improve the accuracy of cancer diagnoses? Mm -hmm. Um, and so a lot of our clients will then tie it to that once we've taken 40, 50, 60, or even 70% out of the system for them, they've retained that. Now they can invest in helping their employees get healthier. At the end of the day, I believe a wellness program is not a cost saver. It's an investment. So I say to my employers all the time when they talk about wellness programs, let's save you some money, give me a year or two, and then let's take some of that savings and invest in the wellness of your employees. Okay. I love that, man. Well, so what is it about the decoupling, right? And going to a flat fee model or a model that has incentives for performance. I mean, let's talk about how humans respond to incentives. What made you decide that's what I want to do? You know, again, I, I credit a lot of people for influencing my life. But one day I was in Oklahoma City and I was walking, being given a tour of the Kempton Group TPA by Jay Kempton. Okay, yeah. yep. And 
he was asking me, like, do I place my own stop loss? And I said, yes, all the time. I don't want a TPA that might be getting money on the back end to be influenced by that. I said, normally I do a 12-12 contract in year one, then I do a run-in contract in year two. Typically, I add in an aggregating specific in year two. He stops. Mm-hmm. He turns around to me. He says, wait a second. You put in aggregating specifics? I said, yeah, all the time. And he said, you're going to win against the big guys every day of the week because they're not putting in aggregating specifics because it's a dollar for dollar return, mm-hmm. right? And all it does is lower premium, which if you're commission-based, lowers your commission. So what's the incentive to put in aggregating specific when it's in the employer's advantage, but it's not in the broker's advantage? Right, right. So, you know, little things like that, I started to see, well, wait a second, what if I didn't take commission? What if I got paid a different way so that I could put in aggregating specifics and not have it hurt me? Yeah. Maybe even have it help me yeah, financially. Absolutely. It would. Yeah. And those, when you start to turn those incentives around, it's miraculous how how much more you see and how much more dedicated you are to achieving the results. That well, you how, what was the reaction of the first employer that you approached with a flat fee consulting arrangement? Like, did they Loved react it. positively? I mean, they had to, once you, you probably had to explain the why first. And then once they got the why, they go, well, yeah, of course. I mean, why would you not do that? Well, right? so that's another funny story that occurred after the lumber manufacturer on my way to that next client. And I, I offered to him, what if you pay me in a different way? And he said, yeah, sure. I said, okay, why don't you pay me a flat fee? But here's the thing. I like getting bonuses from the carrier. So what if instead of me getting a bonus from the carrier, I get a bonus from you for doing what you want me to do? Mm-hmm. He said, I love that. Perfect. I said, great. What do you want me to do? And he said, I want you to lower my healthcare costs. And now in that moment, mm-hmm. I hope I kept my game face on, but inside I shrunk. Okay. Because I realized that while I had spent decades at that point, understanding and learning and knowing health insurance, I didn't know anything about healthcare. Mm-hmm. And I think we can all agree the amount of money that we need to put into a health plan, whether it's premiums, deductibles, claims, co-pays, out-of-pockets, is a direct result of the vacuum left by the money coming out of the plan. And if I couldn't figure out a way to change the money coming out of the plan, then I was never going to change the direction of the money going into the plan. So my career path changed dramatically at that point. I had to start to understand how healthcare is delivered and paid for. How is the price determined? How is the place determined? How is the treatment determined? How is the coverage determined? And once you start to understand that, you recognize that there's actually a beauty that the, the employers have that they don't understand, a leverage. Healthcare is, other than restaurants, is the only place that I can think of where you don't pay until after services are rendered. Like, at, no matter how bad your credit is, you get credit at a restaurant, right? Because they serve you the food, and then you pay afterwards. Well, healthcare is the same way. You don't pay for most healthcare. It's not, you know, pharmacy you pay for. But when you talk about hospital bills, certainly... That gets paid weeks or months after. And so if you take away the contractual handcuffs in terms of determining in advance what needs to be paid, then you can determine afterwards what needs to be paid. Mm -hmm. And now the employer has all the leverage because the costs have been incurred, the services have been rendered, but nothing's been paid for. And that is the leverage that we exercise every single day, at least with the non-friendly health systems. We have a lot of health systems and and clinical partners that we have upfront agreed pricing that is sometimes 80 or 90% less than Blue Cross and Blue Shields does get. I don't want to say can get does get. Okay. Um, and, uh, and so that's, I mean, th- th- there's only one way to pay less for healthcare. You have to pay less yeah. for healthcare. Yeah, so, well, now the beauty of what you're describing as I was listening is that you created your own incentive model. So not only did you change the way you got paid, but you incentivize yourself to perform in a different manner and provide services in a different manner that the outcomes, if achieved, benefit the employer and benefit you in a positive way. You basically created your own payment methodology to a degree that encourage your behavior that benefit that employer. And it can be done, right? And then now the question is, is how do you design a plan as a follow-up to that 
so that you achieve those outcomes. Um, the first question I want to ask is maybe kind of a technical one in nature. How do you define what is fair or average performance so that you can outperform that average? Performance? So we don't we don't look to perform against average. Okay. To be honest with you, that's a meaningless goal. And let's face well, so it. So I guess agreed upon barometer or bar. The bar to achieve. The, this yeah. it's really simple. We look at what they spent in the 12 months prior to coming to our plan. We then divide that by the average number of enrolled employees to get per employee per year. Mm -hmm. We then three months after the end of the first year with our plan, we do the same exact thing. And our bonus is tied to the delta in the PEPY. And the reason we tie it to PEPY instead of absolute costs is because if they're acquiring, let's say, and they double their employee population, sure. if, I, if they spent the same they did the year before, they actually spent half, right? Per mm -hmm. employee, mm -hmm. they spent mm -hmm. half. So we do that to normalize just fluctuations in sure. enrollment. But ultimately, we're typically tying our financial bonuses to 15 or 20% of the reduction from what they spent in the prior year. Okay. And then you said ongoing, it'll sort of morph over time because you, I guess you could theoretically only cut 20% off so, so long before there's not fat to really attack. So then how did you say that you morph it into year three and year four? So you're still incentivized properly and, and those sorts of things. So our, you know, we generally save at the end of the second or third year, 50 or 60% from what they were paying. Wow before. Okay. So if you think about the average employer spending a million dollars per hundred employees, that means a 300 life group, we're going to save them $1.8 million, you know, over three years. Um, and so, sorry, no, $1.8 million in the first year. <laughs> um, and that gives them this relaxed pressure. Right now, they're so pressured financially that when someone comes with something to them, even that's something that makes sense in terms of improving health or lowering costs, it typically comes with a cost up front. Sure. And so they're so dollar PPM to death that getting traction in things that really work prior to those savings and funds being freed up to afford them is very difficult. But it becomes so much easier when you're like, okay, we have $6 million saved over here. Let's take a million of that. And let's put this program. We've had clients put in infertility benefits. We had, you know, one client after the, um, Dobbs decision where they said we will pay for anyone to go to any state in which it's safe and legal to have an abortion. That was their philosophy. Um, and so, uh, you know, they, they, they wind up being able to do really creative things. And what that allows the employer to do is really morph that plan into something that is fully aligned with their culture. Yeah. Whereas right now they're forced to take Blue Cross and Blue Shields culture when it comes to healthcare and health insurance. Yeah. This allows them to take control. Well, and it's interesting once you sort of, especially if you're taking over a fully insured group, dispel this misconception that in order to save costs, I've somehow got to make the benefits worse for my employees, yeah. that you get to present an option that not only makes those benefits infinitely better, but that actually lowers the cost concurrently. PlanSight is a complete game changer in the world of insurance brokering. As a broker, you know how time-consuming and error-prone the traditional RFP process can be. But what if I told you there's a better way? PlanSight is the only end-to-end -end RFP solution on the market made specifically for benefits agencies. It's like having a superpower that gets you an average of eight to 10 hours back per employer renewal per year. And the best part, PlanSight supports all carriers, all funding types, and all group sizes for over 20 different benefits. If you're ready to make your RFP process faster, more efficient, and more profitable, it's time to call PlanSight. Visit PlanSight.com now to book a free demo and discover the future of insurance renewals. And let me explain why that doesn't save costs, okay? Okay. It's December, right? So we have people that are renewing January 1st. So let's say on December 31st, you work for a company that has the richest benefits possible with United. Just pick care. Okay. 
And they decide on January 1st that they're going to go to the leanest high deductible health plan that United offers. Mm -hmm. So from best to worst. You go for a procedure on December 31st. One of your coworkers goes for the same procedure by the same provider coded the same way on January 1st. What's the cost of those two procedures relative to each other? They're exactly the same. It's just you were lucky enough to have your employer pay more of the cost on December 31st and your coworker was unfortunate enough to have yeah. to pick up more of the cost. It doesn't save money. That's like saying that Bank of America is going to lower your car payment on your car if you tell Geico to raise your deductible from 500 to 1000 bucks. You have to actually pay less for healthcare. And here's one thing that is different about healthcare that is important to understand. Cost and quality in healthcare tend to be inversely related. So mm -hmm. while we don't use cost as the sole metric for determining quality, we have a lot of other ways to val validate that. Generally speaking, when you're sending people to higher quality providers, you're sending them to lower cost mm -hmm. providers. So mm -hmm. when you really get a win-win, you, you prioritize the providers that are doing the right thing. You get the patient to the best outcomes possible in an environment in which they in our plans, they pay nothing for that. And the employer is paying 50, 60, 70, 80% less for that care than they would have paid had it flowed through a traditional plan. Yeah. And would you even argue that if you make the benefits worse and push more cost onto the individual employee, that it actually might create worse outcomes because of the delay and deferral of care? It does. And here's the thing. If there's a Kaiser Family Foundation every year they put out a healthcare report and every year they compare the average individual and single rate of an HMO, a PPO, a POS, and an HDHP there's not much of a difference anymore. Because okay. I think what happened with the high deductible health plans is they got adopted so fast, they were cheaper. Employers could afford to put uh, some of the deductible into the employees' accounts. But as the rates started to creep up, they pulled from putting money into those accounts. Oh. And now employees just were left with these high deductibles. They started to delay care. And you actually started to see high deductible health plans inflate a little bit faster than copay-based plans. Yeah. Um, and now there's just there's almost no delta between them. And so now you, you, when you're in a high deductible health plan, which, by the way, under the federal law, the Affordable Care Act, is one of the worst plans you can purchase – what are you going to do when you get a 30 or 40% rate increase, and, but you're, you're already in the worst plan possible? Now what are you going to do? Yeah. Pay, I don't know, pay more, pay more money. Um, I want to talk mechanistically, though, how you achieve some of those outcomes. I think there's a few things that I've heard you talk about that you really like. One of those categories is reference-based pricing. So why reference-based pricing? Why is it uh, popular? For well, you? I want to be clear that reference-based pricing is the least preferred payment model within our health plans. Okay, okay. It's the backstop. Okay. It's when nothing else worked. Okay. Um, and so we've developed thousands, tens of thousands of direct contracts with imaging centers, ambulatory surgical centers, um, orthopedic. I mean, you just, you, you name it. We have most of it. And we've agreed to upfront pricing. We know how it compares to market. We know what their quality is. And so we don't use reference-based pricing. We agree to a price and they provide the service and yeah. the plan pays the price. Like yeah. a genius, I know, in healthcare. Um, <laughs> but uh, but reference-based pricing is when we have to interact with the traditional healthcare system and have no other way to price the care. So it comes with some friction. Don't get me wrong. Sure. Although I'll tell you the friction is relatively minor um, and easily solved with taking a little piece of your savings and making it go away. Um, but our plans prioritize advanced primary care and going to the providers that are doing the right thing for the right price. Um, and that eliminates all the friction of reference-based pricing. But, okay. but reference-based pricing just gives you visibility and cost control, which you can't get in a PPO model. Well, and ultimately, like, your, what is your sentiment, if you will, of a network in general, the utility of a network? I understand perhaps why they were derived in the first place, or at least the premise of why they were sold that way. But then in terms of the usefulness of a network in today's insurance world, do we need them anymore? I mean, we 
don't have a network for anything else that we buy. It's not like MasterCard is saying, you can only go to this restaurant and this restaurant. Um, but uh, no, they, they were perverted. So initially, networks were created to say, hey, let's take a high volume of patients. Let's funnel them to a small volume of providers. We'll get efficiencies on reimbursement rates. And back in the day when this first occurred, HMOs in the 70s and 80s, you had a gatekeeper, your primary care physician, that prevented you from going to a specialist unless it was truly necessary. And what quickly happened is employers said, you know, look, this idea of a network in healthcare is crazy, but I see the benefits financially. But here's the problem. My, my wife's OBGYN is not in your network. So if you go get that OBGYN and I'll move my whole company to you. And so the, the, the broker calls up the sales exec at the carrier, tells him this. The sales exec calls provider relations and says, this is one doctor. I don't care what they charge. Just get that one doctor in. And instantly this pressure to expand the network right. occurred. Then a few years later, I imagine... Some well-intentioned HR person said, you know, my employees really hate having to get referrals. So what do we have today? We have plans where 97% of providers are in the network. You don't need a referral, so you can go right to the back surgeon when your back hurts, which practically preordains back surgery being the most likely outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and how are we getting these efficiencies? We're not when 97% of their competition is in the network as well. So I think it depends on the network. I don't want to say there's no value in any network, but I think the large national networks have been so bastardized. And I want to point out when a self-funded employer signs the Aetna Network Access Agreement, they're signing one agreement, one document that contractually obligates them to the pricing and restrictions of tens of thousands of other contracts. But if they ask to see any of those contracts, the ones that really determine what they're going to pay, they'll be told they're proprietary and confidential. Could you imagine an employer signing a document contractually obligating them to other documents for something that winds up being their second or third biggest expense in business without having any insight into those contracts? Mm -hmm. It's not done anywhere else in business. Well, when you put it that way, I can imagine any employer just on the surface saying yes to that, but that's <laughs> probably unaware, right? Yeah. Uh, yep. That's what they're signing. So there, there's the network component. Another component that I think you used to create the right incentives that I heard you say earlier was sort of plan design or yes. perhaps removal of deductibles and out-of-pockets altogether. So how are you achieving that? So we have navigators typically run by nurses and doctors um, who typically at the pre-certification level. So when a doctor calls in and says, hey, we want to do this, here's why, we're going to first use clinical evidence-based models for what is the right thing to actually approve or not approve, but assuming that clinically whatever they're recommending is the right thing, then we look at right place, right time, right provider. And if that's not the right place, right time, right provider, as it normally isn't, we will offer them an alternative. We will tell them why, and we typically just speak about the quality piece. But we say that your employer so much wants you to get to higher quality care that they'll pay 100% of it if you choose to go there. We can force it. I haven't yet had an employer make me do that. And because if they go the traditional route, we typically use reference-based pricing. So we're still saving the employer money, even though that patient is being exposed to their deductible. Most of our plans, even in their worst case scenario, are better than the best case scenario is in traditional plans. Well, that's just, I heard uh, somebody, was it, uh, I don't know if it was Gentry uh, the other day, called it a carrot-flavored stick. So you don't need to use the stick altogether, but if you just give it enough an incentive that even though the worst case scenario is still sort of status quo or better than status quo, the employer is still benefiting from that decision. But realistically, you know which decision you want to encourage or incentivize ultimately. So how do we, David, and I think you were challenging me on this, my, my pushback on like scaling this, right? Yeah. Or if reference-based 
pricing or some form of it or direct contracts across the board for all employers in the country was possible. You were sort of pushing back on that, my own perceived limitation of saying, I'm not so sure that's the case. So how do we go about scaling this model? I think I could talk about this now, both because I'm sure my non-disclosure is over and the company's <laughs> folded at this point. But um, I was working with what became Haven, with the uh, J.P. Morgan Amazon Berkshire Hathaway. Okay. And I was on the phone with Dr. Atul Gawande, who was the CEO of it. And the plan was we were going to implement one of our plans at one Berkshire Hathaway company. Pick like a two or 3,000 employee company, put it in there. And so Dr. Gawande says to me, David... <clears throat> When this is successful at that one company, as I'm sure it will be, how do we scale this to the 2.1 million employees that are Amazon, mm -hmm. J.P. Morgan, and Berkshire mm -hmm. Hathaway? And I almost fell off my chair, but I said, I said a tool, I got to be honest with you, I don't know the answer to that right now, but I do know this. Between the people you know and the people I know, if demand gets to that point, we'll figure that out. Mm -hmm. Listen, if we, I think this is going to be a slow game. I don't think it's going to be a fast game, but if it were a fast game, a lot of mistakes are going to be made. But we're making mistakes now. So does it get worse or does it stop getting worse and then start to get better? I think, you know, I'm halfway torn between reforming the current system and blowing it up and starting over again. Mm -hmm. I don't know which one's going to be better or be more impactful. Yeah. Uh, Emma prefers to blow it up and start over again. <laughs> we'll talk uh, about that yep. with her in a little bit. Um, but I'm curious though, like we're not going up against other mom and pops that we're trying to challenge no. this notion. We're going up against multi-billion, hundreds of billions of dollars companies. I don't know what, uh, you know, the market share is of like United Health Care. 280 billion in there revenue. Oh, of revenue. So what, uh, is, what does that make the valuation of that company? Half a trillion dollars or yep. something like that? So we're dealing with a massive forces against against this uh, operationally. So what are they going to do to react? I'm out of curiosity. Or what are they currently doing to react a little bit? Well, so they've been doing some things for a long time. And it's really interesting because I speak to a lot of people every week, many of whom have really good solutions. And I will tell you one way that I validate it's a good solution before even really understanding it is if a carrier approached them and they only approach them from the Medicare side of the house. Okay. Because the medical loss ratio only applies to the commercial employer and individual. So in that model, costs go up, revenue goes up, profit goes up. But the Medicare, they get a fixed income from the government when they take a Medicare Advantage beneficiary over. And in that model, keeping the cost down means more profit. And so when a Medicare Advantage program is interested in, in utilizing or even purchasing, now if they see it as a real threat to the commercial, they buy it. Yep. They, I've seen it happen. It recently happened um, with some people. I was kind of disappointed, to be honest with you. But um, that's, I mean, they're, they're so, they have so much money and so much influence, even politically, that they can pretty much do what they want right now. And so where does this change come from? A little more than half of America gets their health care or health insurance through their employer. It's the employers that I think are going to be the ones that change it. And, 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 and I think Sean Shanson said this, it's not going to be a 5 million employee company. It's going to be a million 500 employee companies mm -hmm. that do it. Well, to, be, to, to kind of jump on top of that point, I had Lee Lewis on here not too long ago, and he does a health transformation alliance. He's dealing with a lot of big jumbo employers. And one thing that he said that stuck with me is that the smaller companies have the ability to pivot very quickly, and they can experiment, and they can try new things and break things, and, and they have that sort of agility that a jumbo employer doesn't. And so they have the ability to tinker perhaps a little bit more uh, because they're not dealing with such massive scale or geographic spread and things like that. And so that's why I love to focus and talk about the small to mid-sized spaces, because I think that's where the opportunity is to really change the hearts and minds of these employers and do it in a way that's still scalable, but you're just dealing with smaller employers on an employer-by-employer -employer basis. I don't think, um, 
that's logistical. I think that's psychological. Okay. I, I actually think these larger employers on a per capita basis have more resources. Mm -hmm. They have to do more to make these changes, but they have more resources with which to do it. You know, a lot of people think larger companies pay less for healthcare, and that's just simply not true. Larger companies just have more money to throw at it, so the yeah. employees feel it less. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if you look at per person, you know, Walmart is not paying much different than Joe the plumber is paying on an aggregate basis. Um, the shifts between employer and employee might be different. So, I actually think these larger companies are better suited to do this. The problem is you have political headwinds. Yep. I think that's why Haven failed was because I could see um, Gail Boudreau, who was the CEO of United at the time, calling up the head of Amazon Web Services and saying, if you keep doing this, we're going to pull all of our technology business from you and go to your competitor. Or... You know, United Healthcare calls up JP Morgan and says, hey, you know all those billions of dollars in investing with you? Well, that's gone. That's going into Morgan mm -hmm. Stanley or whatever. Um, so I believe, I don't know, but I believe some of those political headwinds have been hit. So they have, the larger companies have more political headwinds. They have more decision makers they have to get through. The smaller companies, it's usually one person. Mm -hmm. Convince that one person and they force it on the rest of the company. So there are some things that do well, make We just have it. to create this groundswell from the bottom up. Yes. Right, ultimately. And I think exposure is one telling a better story, have a better narrative, right? And being you know, publicly visible in the way that you tell that story can make an impression on more and more people over time. Uh, David, I know we got a, a time constraint. I'd like to spend another hour with you, honestly, asking questions. Well, you but got a good one on deck. Yeah, I've got a really good one on deck and I think we're gonna have a great conversation as well. And I couldn't be more excited about today. Um, but let's, let's kind of close shop. Let's talk about the big picture stuff. I got your perspective on healthcare and where we're going. But in the interest of having a few minutes left here just to talk, what are a couple things that you wanna make sure the, the listeners left with? ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer-sponsored benefit plans, allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically People, and it become a real simple transition. We thought it was going to be far more complex. I've saved, we'll say, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could not say enough about ClaimDoc. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I think a lot of the listenership here are people in the industry. And I, I want you to know, first of all, you can make a difference. You know, I actually would argue that a broker, consultant, advisor, whatever you want to call us, has the opportunity to have an impact on the company and its employees and their families more than any other professional that an employer mm -hmm. employs. And we're shirking that responsibility largely to entities who don't share that same motivation. And so I would challenge brokers and consultants to say, how can I do things differently that fundamentally change the outcomes? How do I incentivize those outcomes and how do I collaborate with other people in the industry to do it? You know, you mentioned Gentry Harris. He's someone that we built a bunch of plans with, and he's now taken that. And well, he's, Gentry Lynn, sorry. With oh, the healthcare sorry. Blue Book, but different, different Gentry. Gentry. Yeah, sorry. That's okay, but keep going. Yeah, yeah. Um, we work with a lot of brokers or consultants, and we, we help them learn how to do this in real world time and with their clients, with their prospects. And our goal is just get them to the point where they don't need us anymore. One interesting thing. I know we didn't really talk about direct primary care. Yes, please. Maybe yeah, you can. Yeah, we'll do this yeah. demo, but I want to hear your thoughts too. But um, we've embraced the direct primary care community and our largest referral source and our highest closing ratio is when we get referred into businesses by doctors. And doctors hate insurance. So I consider mm -hmm. it to be a very high honor for a doctor to refer me in. And that's where we've been getting a lot of our business. We've actually been getting business from doctors referring us now to other doctors. So we're actually starting to write these plans in medical practices more and more. Okay. Um, so 
you know, it's, it's funny because a lot of these hospitals will do things for their own health plan, but they won't extend that same courtesy to employers in the market through their health plans. Um, I think some doctors are starting to see that as well. Like, Hey, we don't have to do this system at least for ourselves. Let's see what it looks like to step outside of it. Um, and a lot of them, if they're not in a, a membership model, they are jealous of those that are. Yeah. And sometimes we help flip them over to that. Well, the quality of life for a physician is, uh, I want to say, infinitely higher, but it's definitely better than the fee-for-service model in terms of their time and the, the time they get with the patient, the, all those things. I want to say that what I've heard from you effectively is if you create the right incentives, you set up the right plan design of the mechanisms to execute on those incentives, you have the right partners, vendor partners, and you tell the right story, you have a movement, if you will. And then you have something that you can go deploy at scale in the country. And so for whatever part that I hopefully can do and shine a light on, you've already got a great thing going, man. But I'm hopeful that, that a couple people at least listen to this and decide to, to make a difference uh, for our industry and then a difference in the way that they go about things. And we'll and, help them. We'll yeah, show them how to do it. Yeah. So reach out to David, reach out to Emma and let's have a, that conversation. But David, in the interest of getting you on your plane on time, Thank I appreciate you. you sitting down with me and now we'll kick it over here to Emma in just a second. Sounds good. Thanks, sir. Thanks, mister.